Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. All right, podcasting. Another um, person I met on Instagram. <laughs> I love it. Talking. I love it. We, um, I know, right? It makes so many good connections. Sometimes people like diss social media so much. I'm like, yeah, but you're missing all the magic of these beautiful connections and this incredible information. Yeah. And I really, truly meet the most amazing people in social media so I'm all for it um yeah I think we followed each other a little bit I have no idea how it started um but it felt really clear to me that I wanted to invite you onto the show and welcome some of your wisdom and your thoughts to our audience of mostly post-abortion listeners but many find the show when they're deciding or um, you know, some people are processing their abortions 30 years later, some are three weeks out. Mm-hmm. Um, so today's guest is Dr. Ashley, is it Solomon? Solomon, yep. You got As it, it sounds, <laughs> like skiing. <laughs> I go with like skiing. <laughs> Not slalom, but the ski gear, Solomon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you are a psychologist, and I love this bit about elevating impact through modern mental health. And I do think, I just love the way you worded that because it is how I feel about my own experience around abortion is dissecting the mental health piece of it, the emotional, spiritual, mental pieces of it. And then using those to be my biggest self in the world and mm-hmm. have an impact. Like it's literally, like if I read that, I'm like, yeah, that's what happened after my abortion. Yeah. Yeah. So I just love the way you, the way you worded that. And then just before we got on, I opened your Instagram page just to like tap into the energy. Mm-hmm. And I just have to read this because it says you don't have to enjoy all, you don't have to enjoy motherhood all the time most of the time, or even some of the time, it doesn't make you a bad or unworthy mother. The reason I have to read that is that's been like my theme of the week. (laughs) So when I saw it, I I was like, yes, just one more person telling me I'm not supposed to like all the parts. (laughs) That's so true. So, um, I do want you to introduce yourself in whatever way you feel is important for the audience today. Um, that particular quote just jumped out at me because also I was like, you don't have to like your abortion or abortion at all, all of the time. And when I think about my journey, I'm like, there were times where I loved abortion. I was so grateful for it. And there were times where I hated that it was a thing and it had to exist. I hated that it was a thing in my life. I hated that, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's just how all of life is. So, yeah. Okay. That's our crazy start. Is there anything you want to say about yourself in bio form or here I am, this is who I am. Thank you. 
Um, well, you, you already shared a little bit of my professional identity. Um, as you said, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been doing that work for probably about 15 years. Um, I would say that anybody in, this is a, a probably gross overgeneralization, but I think anybody in the field of mental health, so myself included, has, you know, experienced our own mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say for myself, um, that started, that started really young. And so, mm -hmm. but I was one of these, I think, really fortunate people to, um, to have a family system that, that was very open and embracing of mental health and treatment. And so yeah. kind of connected me to like, therapy and, you know, mental health resources young. And so I kind of grew up without a lot of the, the stigma and shame yeah. around it. And only sort of later realized sort of what, what kind of barriers existed in the rest of the world, including a lot of that, just like secrecy and, um, and shame around just like talking about hard things where yeah. in, in my house, we talked about hard things a lot. So, and, but I know I, I'm sort of, uh, was sort of an anomaly. So it seemed really natural for me to go into a, a world where I could ask people really deep personal questions. And that was, that was very expected and normalized. Um, totally. but I was always, um, it was always my calling, um, I'm not sure, I'm sure what the right word is there. Calling is probably right to work and serve women. And um, particularly at these really intense kind of challenge points in their lives. And so um, the, the world of kind of transition to motherhood, people going through um, different traumatic experiences, um, just life stage transitions has always been just super meaningful to me because it, 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 I think we're constantly growing and evolving, of course, but it's at those sort of crisis or intense moments that I think like just a different kind of transformation happens. Yeah. So, so it's really, it's a really cool privilege to do this work. And I, um, I own a practice uh, where we, our, our mission is, as you, you said before, to really elevate the impact of, of girls and women um, through, um, through their mental health, because I think that of like what you were saying as well earlier, when I think what I see is, is that so many of us in the midst of our most trying moments, like our, our lights dampen and we get smaller and smaller and we isolate. And, um, and some of that is, is sort of needed and self-protective. Like we might need, you know, to be in a space that we can like do that healing work kind of away from the rest of the world. But but I think so many of us end up staying there for far too long as a mm. result of, you know, things that have happened or um, depression or anxiety or these challenges. And my, my mission is really like for the greater world that we get the, the voices of women and girls back. And so I think that that takes offering, you know, healing and treatment and support. So yeah. that's why I do this work. I'm also, uh, I'm also a mom. Um, I have four kiddos that are like two to nine. Ooh, um, mama. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's, it's, that's an intense season in that way too. Yeah. Um, and how to, you know, just as it like relates to maybe some of the stuff we'll talk about, I'm not sure what we'll talk about, but, um, had some, you know, just intense experiences along this like path of figuring out what my family now looks like. So including, you know, loss and infertility and um, mm. different choices to be made and that sort of stuff. So that's one of the reasons I've really resonated with your work and started mm. following you. I think I followed you initially and was like, oh my gosh, there's someone doing this work, which is so beautiful and so needed and just like felt so unchartered to me. Um, that I've been really grateful. It so. does. It feels yeah. unchartered to me too. <laughs> yeah. 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 No idea what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I think that's the beauty of it too. And I think that's part of, part of my work is the abortion work. And then part of my work is just modeling, like whatever your thing is, that's uncharted territory, like go shed yeah. some light on it. Like it's so, true. so much in the world that we're not talking about and that we mm-hmm. can talk about and that we can make a difference by by expose, I don't know, exposing feels like the wrong word, but like by talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Shedding light. Um, you said something about that time where you've experienced something and you kind of get quiet, cocoon yourself in, Mm -hmm. and then there's a time to come out of that right? Like there's a natural healing time of receding and isolating. And Mm -hmm. then there's a time where it is in your highest good to come out of that cocoon. Yeah. And the question I had, if I, if I worded it the way that I was hearing it, when you said it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the question I had is like, what are some of the signs you think of how, you know, it's time to that, that the receding that the isolating, that the hiding almost, I guess maybe that's how, you know, when it, Mm. when it shifts from Mm -hmm. I'm receding or I'm retreating to I'm hiding, that might be the sign. But what do you think about, like, how does someone know if they're ready to come out into the world after any experience, but for my audience after abortion? After experience abortion. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I like the distinction that you made or the, or using the word hiding, because I, I do think that there's a, a natural process. I mean, I, I find myself a lot thinking about, um, like our connection to the natural world. Um, I'm hoping this is all going to make sense and our connection to the natural world. And, you know, when an animal, for example, experiences injury, most often they are going to like retreat to a safe place, um, where they can take some time to recover and hopefully sort of get away from predators. And I think, (laughs) and I, I think our like modern day predators are often like our email inboxes and our bosses and our, you know, invitations to the next baby shower or something, um, you know, the things that create that like threat response. But so like an animal is going to retreat in some way and is never going to like be expected. And this is true even for us as humans, if we sustain like a physical injury, for instance, you know, we, it's expected that we're going to take some time for, um, you know, recuperation and restoration. Um, but I think when, and there is almost a hiding to it, you know, in terms of like, I'm doing what I need to keep myself 
um, safe and protected and what feels like safe and, and protection for me. Um, but I think if we kind of use that animal model, like we're not designed or intended to mm. stay there. We are, we are um, social beings. We are like communal creatures. And so there's going to be, I think this natural instinct um, maybe we could put it that way as an instinct and urge a drive to kind of re-engage in our community. And so I think at, at, in the best case scenario, if we are really kind of quiet and in tune with ourselves, we'll be able to notice that drive. We'll be able to notice like I'm, I'm, I feel more interested in re-engaging. I feel more connected to people. I just, um, like I can feel that in my body, that urge. I think sometimes, for so many of us in, in modern life, and I think particularly for women, this is true for men too, you know, we've gotten so good at suppressing our natural inclinations though, that like we feel really disconnected from reading those cues. And so okay. at that point, when we're thinking about, um, you know, do I really feel ready to re-engage? I think, um, I think for myself, I'm thinking about like experiences I've had with this, like, what would it, you know, I'm asking myself questions like, you know, what, what, what is like re-engaging look like? Um, like what feels nourishing? Like maybe, mm. maybe going back to work or to a big gathering, like feels like it's like way beyond my window of tolerance, but you know, getting coffee with a friend feels like that would feel like really good to my soul. Um, and what feels like it is going to pour into me versus like require me to continue to pull out knowing that like, again, just like the physical healing process, like we're not going to put all of our weight back on our foot right away. It's going to be this gradual process of like beginning to practice, um, you know, it bearing more and more of a load and until one day when we feel like, oh, that actually like I'm feeling stronger. I'm feeling mm. like I can, I can do a little bit more. I can take a few more steps. So I think it's really like an intuitive process, but it's just not so many of us are disconnected from our intuition. So it's not as easy as it <laughs> yeah. maybe should be. I love this word re-engage. Ah. So good. Um, the words I kept hearing, because sometimes I just like hear my audience's reaction, <laughs> mm -hmm. is those moments when you feel like I should re-engage mm -hmm. versus I'm yeah. ready to re-engage. Mm -hmm. um, what do we do when the should voices are there, but we're not feeling the intuitive um, authenticity mm -hmm. of like stepping like I'm back ready. into the social world. Yeah. I think with any shoulds, because the shoulds obviously come up for us always, all the time. I mean, for some of us more so than others, we live with that shoulding voice. Um, I often encourage us to think about like whose voice is that and so for some people for some people there's like a very clear sort of external um kind of source <laughs> like yeah say, that's, that's my mom's voice yeah. or that's that's the voice of um you know perfectionism or, or yeah. right mm -hmm. yeah or patriarchy or mm -hmm. my boss or 
And sometimes it feels, uh, you know, sometimes when I ask people that question, uh, it's like, well, it's my own, it's my own voice. Like mm-hmm. that's what I, totally. and in those cases, what I try to introduce is this idea that, um, we are all made up of all of these different parts of ourselves. Like none of us are, are like wholly one being, we all carry all of these parts that, um, sometimes have almost like different interests or personalities, like different aspects of who we are. And so we try to sort out, um, what's the part of you that is, is projecting that should. And oftentimes, like when we, you know, there are lots of different answers to that question, but oftentimes it's some form of, of a part of us that is trying really hard to protect us by having us do the things that it believes are going to ultimately keep us safe. So if you dive right back in, then no one's going to have any questions and everyone's going to, you know, um, value you because you're able yes. to like produce again or whatever. So it, it has like, even the should has a good yes. intention, but we have to, so I do this practice with people where we, we approach it, not as like, uh, you know, shut up that part of my brain, but more so like, what am I feeling that I need to be protected from if I don't do that thing that I think I yes. should, you know, and is it, rejection or is it, you know, criticism or isolation, or I won't be like, I won't feel worthy of, you know, care or attention, but that work is really, can be really revealing to understand Mm. like, where's that, where's that coming from rather than just immediately being like, Oh, I should do this. So that's what I'm going to do. And like getting curious about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me why we've connected. (laughs) (laughs) We think very similarly. So the other thing that popped in as I was listening, there's the should, and then there's also the have to, right? Like I have to take care of my other kids. I have to go back to work. I have to. I love that you brought up the baby shower example. Um, This might be a whole nother um conversation after this have to one but like I have to support my sister I have to support Mm -hmm. my best friend Mm -hmm. um I think in a lot of ways it's the same thing like which part of you is saying I have to and how do we let those parts interact with each other and support each other um but does anything feel different to you is there any other pieces Mm -hmm. around the have to versus the should yeah yeah uh, so I guess two thoughts, um, that I would kind of like to share on that. I think the first one is that whenever I hear I have to, I mean, I do, um, I do always start with it. Like I, I always start with by questioning it because I think that have to is always built on an assumption and yes. it's not to say that that's wrong it's not about whether it's right or wrong like we could probably you know you could get into a philosophical debate about whether you have to or don't have to but I think the the better question is like what is that assumption based on so I have to do this thing um oftentimes in the best case scenario because it's connected to a value that I hold um sometimes the have to's are just based on like I'm not able to think kind of creatively about 
like maybe I'm under so much stress that I can't think creatively about like another solution. Like maybe I, as an example, like I have to, it's a silly one, but like I have to make dinner tonight. Like my kids have to eat or my yeah. family has to eat. Yeah. And maybe I'm just like operating in such autopilot that I'm not stopping to think about like, what are five other options besides yes. me making dinner, you know? Yes. But I think when we're in um, you know, our nervous system is activated or we're in high stress situations or we're trying to problem solve quickly. We're not always our most creative selves to think about if I wasn't holding this to be like absolute, like if it didn't have to be so like what other solutions could I come up with? That said, you know, I think in the best case scenarios, our have tos are because whatever that thing is feels connected to a value that I hold. So you know, supporting my sister, for example, in the example that you gave, um, you know, I have to support my sister. Maybe if we sort of dig into that, it's because that is so core to who I am is to be, feel able to show up for her in this way. And, um, and I think that at that point, it's going back kind of to the creativity, like, does it have to be in this particular way? Like, mm-hmm. what is it actually like at the, at the core of that value? What does that mean? And maybe it actually means like, what I actually care about is being like true and authentic with my sister. And maybe if she yeah. knew that I didn't have the capacity for this right now, she wouldn't want me to be doing that thing anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's, I think just, honestly, I think this is where like coaching and therapy and, or even just like really solid friendship is so helpful because when we are, when we are in it, when we are like in the thing, we're not necessarily able no. to think it's in these broad terms. I think we get better at it with practice, but having like a thought partner in that process, yeah. I think Ooh. is so helpful. I love those words, thought partner. Oh, yeah. that's so good. Um, I love that you brought up the values and the creativity. Um, I think, I think often when we go to the values, we find that I do actually want, there is a part of me that wants to support my sister. And so knowing that I have that want, or I want to pay the bills, or I want my children to be fed, knowing that that want is true to me, Mm -hmm. is this the way I want to? So I want to support my sister is going to her baby shower the way I want to right now, since I had an abortion mm-hmm. last week or whatever. Right. Um, so I love that. Just like remembering the value and that it actually is a true want, not a have to. Mm-hmm. And then also tapping then into creativity. I think our brains yeah. can be much more creative once we realize it's something we want. Yeah. And when we agreed. think it's something we're obligated to do or don't have a choice about. Yeah. Yeah. As you were saying that, I thought of like, and you know, maybe another way of thinking about it is um, because I was talking about this this morning. Like, if we start with the why, which is more of the value, like what's what is important to you to do, or, or the 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 why I would be going to the baby shower is to support my sister. So we have that why as the like bottom of the pyramid, like what's holding everything up, but the, the, how we do that, like there are infinite, potentially (laughs) infinite possibilities as to like how we can serve that why. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't have to look the way that we 
think it should or think that we have to like it can look a lot of different ways and 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 I think we can often find one that feels like something we want to do to your point about the want so it doesn't feel like incongruent with like what our needs are yes exactly and I love this idea of a thought partner because it's not it does take some kind of working it out looking at it from this angle and that angle mm-hmm. and twisting it around and playing with it in your in your mouth and your body and your heart um I mean I think that's what my whole podcast is and my all of my body of work is just like playing in the mm-hmm. thought world <laughs> yeah. yeah I love yeah. thinking about it it's so true it's yeah. So yeah yeah so good um okay we we touched a little bit on the baby shower piece yeah. Um, and let's just start fresh with that conversation as in, it doesn't have to be related to anything. It can be, but it doesn't have to be connected mm-hmm. to anything we said before. The reason that stuck out to me so much is just this week alone. I've had at least just in the last two days, like three or four messages regarding mm-hmm. like my best friend is pregnant and it makes it so mm-hmm. hard or my sister, I keep I keep seeing pregnant people everywhere or it's super present this week, but it's also just so common that being confronted with baby. And I say confronted as in just, yeah, they're in front of you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels like a confrontation when you're, when you're not at peace Mm -hmm. and you're seeing this pregnancy or this baby or whatever it is. Um, so as a clinical psychologist, what would some of your go-to tools be for navigating those waters of, I just chose to end a pregnancy, um, and this person is carrying it or is trying to get pregnant and can't, right? Mm -hmm. So how does my reproductive body relate to someone else's reproductive body? I guess is Mm -hmm. kind of the essence of the question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's a really great way of thinking too. Yeah. In, in some ways, I am realizing I always start with this because I think it's so foundational. Um, and that's this concept or practice of self-compassion, which I think so, sometimes, I mean, I've even, I even notice I'll do this myself. It's easy to disregard like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be nice to myself. <laughs> um, but I think that the actual practice of self-compassion is so profound um, that like when we really experience it, like when we really are able to offer it to ourselves, we have that like whole body like shift. Um, but I think, so in the vein of self-compassion, um, there are, there are kind of three components to it, to the practice. One is just being able to be mindfully aware of what's going on. And I think that's worth calling out. Again, that one seems a little bit obvious, like, okay, I'm aware of what's happening, like, obviously, but I think especially when we've gone through something difficult um, or painful or, you know, whatever, um, maybe challenging emotions we might be having, we can get pretty dissociated from ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes that's just through where we are distracting ourselves a lot um, with whatever social media or alcohol or whatever, any kind of numbing agent. Um, 
And so the like paying attention to what's happening. So when I notice that I'm, you know, approaching this pregnant person in the world, notice what's happening in my body Mm -hmm. that like, Mm -hmm. my heart rate's quickening and I'm feeling like a sense of, um, you know, discomfort in my body. So it's paying attention on purpose. And then the second part of self-compassion is, um, is knowing that other people have experienced the same feeling, Mm. sort of that normalizing the experience. And to me, that's like the core Mm. because, because so much, I think of the pain that we experience in those moments, um, of seeing other people, for example, like seeing someone pregnant and feeling whatever feelings come into our body, like the, there's the feeling that we're experiencing, but the suffering from it comes from feeling alone with that feeling, feeling like I shouldn't be feeling that or what's wrong with me for still feeling this way six months later or 10 years later, whatever, you know, our arbitrary timeframe is that we've decided is acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're putting all this judgment on ourselves about like, we're the only one that would feel this way. And so something as simple as like, it makes total sense that I would feel uncomfortable (laughs) in this situation, or it makes total sense that like that would create that feeling in my body. And then the third part of self-compassion practice is just showing ourselves kindness. And so Mm -hmm. it's, and I like to think about simply showing ourselves the same kindness that we would show any friend. So if our friend came to us and said, I, you know, got this invitation to this baby shower and I'm really feeling uncomfortable about going. Um, I mean, I can't imagine saying to them, like, you need to suck it up. Like you need to, to be there for this person. And, you know, you shouldn't be still feeling the way that you're feeling, you know, I would say, of course, it makes sense that you would yes. feel that way. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to give yourself whatever, whatever feels like the most right decision for you. So I, um, I think it's a good model to sort of lean back on because there's like, I like models because in moments of, you know, stress and anxiety, we're not necessarily gonna, unless we have something kind of tangible to hold on to, it's hard to like come back to like the skills that we actually do have. Um, so I think like paying attention, knowing that other people have felt this too. And then self-kindness would be like my, my practice for that kind of experience. That's so good. Aww. So good. I love it. I love it. And yeah, just those two words, of course, are so powerful. Like, of course, mm-hmm. I'm feeling this way. Of course, this is hard to look at. Of mm-hmm. course, this is hard to be around. Yeah. It's so powerful. It kind of wraps in all three of those parts into two words. Yeah. Like the awareness. That you're like helping me think about like how often in the course of like a therapy session, I say that and I, I which I don't think I've really noticed that until you just pointed that out. I'm yeah. like, worse. Like, yeah. yeah. It, it addresses all three parts in two words. Um, it's beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you. Um, I love you so much. I feel like we could talk forever. Is there any- <laughs> I think we could. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, is there, I don't have a particular direction I want to go or a way I want to close. Is there anything you came today hoping mm-hmm. to share or thinking about or anything that's come up since, or just like 
tapping in someone needs to hear that whatever um, yeah um when you started to ask that question I don't I don't honestly I don't have like a very formulated thought but I guess the like the feeling that I was having or the like urge I was having was was just to sort of emphasize the value of community mm -hmm. and um I think it's something that's really it's like a major theme in the work that I do, you know, something we do in our practice is we, we run these circle, we call them circles, drive mm -hmm. circles, um, you know, around different, you know, challenges that, that women experience and like life stages. And I'm always saying, you know, we are in our practice or a group of psychologists, therapists. And so we have this like quote unquote expert leading this group and, you know, we're doing some education and skills and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I often say like, none of that could be present and just the community itself is so, is healing, is the healing agent. Um, oh, I mean, I think you have to facilitate it, of course, um, but there's just nothing. I mean, I think it speaks to some of the things that we've talked about today in terms of like shedding light and like when you're ready to sort of come out of the more like isolative part of the healing process and maybe go into the more like community based part of the healing process. Um, I just hope for your listeners and the people that, you know, might be listening to this, that whatever that looks like. Um, and I think that this is like a particularly, you know, challenging experience to find other people um, that are willing to talk and engage, but it's like so vital to feel like going back to that, like, I'm not the only one who has felt this in my body. I'm not the only one who has had this question or this thought or is like so healing. So I don't even know if that exists. I mean, maybe that's sort of a question to, like, yeah. are there, are there things out there, ways for people to <laughs> to connect you're probably like working on creating things Ashley's and... looking at my face like yeah <laughs> there's not a lot <laughs> yeah um we're working on it right like everybody's finding their way and their voice in the conversation and, and circles do exist so my yeah. advice to my audience is always just keep looking keep looking and if you're feeling Courage enough, courageous enough or strong enough to start a circle where you are, do it. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a group of people you want to start a circle with, like reach out to me, like I'm happy to facilitate. Yeah. Um, but one thing that felt really clear to me as you were talking is um, I get on calls with people who are interested in, in doing the coaching work beyond just engaging in my other work. Mm -hmm. And they say, like, I can't believe I'm hearing your voice because they have been mm -hmm. listening to the podcast for, yeah. you know, a long time often. And I just want to remind people that your community, like I can be a part of your community, even yeah. if you, I don't know that I am. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, yes. It, yeah. Right? If Oprah is a part yeah. of your community, then Oprah is a part of your community. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. If Ashley is a part of your community, like yeah. let that be okay. Um, yeah. cause sometimes yeah, we can't that. find people like who we can actually engage back and forth with. Um, but we can surround ourselves with resources that become our community until we until we find it. So, mm. Yeah, that's yeah. such a beautiful reminder. Yeah, I love that. 
So good. Um, where can people learn more and keep keep yeah. listening to your wisdom? Oh, thank you. Um, probably the best place is Instagram. So um, I'm at, at Gallia Collaborative. So Gallia is G-A-L-I-A Collaborative. And um, I'm on there pretty often. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great place. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. And let yeah. me just ask you one more question because I yeah. ask it to like everyone in the therapy world in case yeah. You have the answer that I've been missing. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. It is my understanding that there is no resource of like abortion friendly therapists. Do you know of anything? Like if I have a, if I have someone reach out to me from Wisconsin and they say, I'm looking for a therapist, can you recommend one? I like this is just not something I've ever been able to successfully do is find who are the abortion supportive therapists in all the places but if you maybe have some mysterious resources oh my gosh I I mean it's making me realize we need one um I I'm not aware of like a more centralized resource no um I mean I would say just as a maybe as a like tip Um, I mean, I think that, um, and, and I know that this, you know, doesn't mean everything, um, and you're more piecing together clues, but, you know, if you're considering reaching out to various therapists, you know, I, I would look for therapists that are really explicit about like their other, their views, um, whether that's on their website or social media, um, you know, I think therapists in general have really been trained to be like very obscure about their <laughs> beliefs and values. And I think that that has really in many cases, and there's reasons for that, but I think in many cases, it does a disservice to people who, you know, you need to know that someone is affirming of, you know, whatever your identity is or whatever your situation is. And so I think, um, you know, there are, there are people and to not be afraid like in an initial call to say like this is what I'm going through is that something you have have experience with you know not just like are you comfortable um but I want to know like does that person have experience with working with other clients that have had this issue um so that they can really be skillful and you know thoughtful and helping you navigate through it so yeah if uh I'm if you're I mean I'm happy to be a resource. Um, you know, if someone's in a particular place and they want to reach out and say, do you know somebody in this place? I mean, I don't know the entire country, but I know a lot of people. So I'm always happy to try to refer people to. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, question. Yeah. Every time I ask, I'm like, maybe maybe." you're like, maybe this mystery (laughs) thing has been hiding, (laughs) but I love that. What I took away from your answer is just don't be afraid to ask. Like, you're looking yeah. for care. So ask specifically right. for the care that you're looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. absolutely. Okay. Thank you so, so much. Um, just really been a pleasure and I'm, I'm honored to add this conversation to the collection. Thank you. Thank you for the chance to be here. Thank 
Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice for.